Father, we come before you this morning asking for your wisdom, your insight as to the things eschatologically that are listed for us in Scripture, the end times, the things that will come to pass in the future. We ask, Lord, that not only would we gain the head knowledge of this, but may it move us, motivate us in such a way that we would strive more to be your disciples, the ones who follow you. With such information, Lord, that the world does not possess, may we be carriers of that information. So enlighten us, Lord. Teach us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, once again, we are on the rapture, and we're going to park on several of these things going through chapter 24 and 25 of the Gospel of Matthew. If you recall last time, I talked about the uh, prophecies that Jesus delivered. He talked about the end of the temple in Jerusalem, which took place in 70 AD, and this is a result of a curse that came upon them because they rejected the Messiah. So that is the first thing that he prophesied. The next thing that's not listed here, it's omitted in this particular text, is in fact the rapture of the church. But after that, it's the tribulation period all the way to the end when the judgment seat of Christ takes place. And so you have the destruction of the temple, you have the rapture of the church, and sometime after that you have the Gog and Magog invasion listed in Ezekiel chapter 38. That's where Russia and Sudan and Iran, which is Persia, they all get together and they come down to destroy Israel. And this is different from the Battle of Armageddon. Then we'll see the abomination of desolation, which takes place in the middle of the seven years of tribulation that the Lord has decreed for the earth. And it's a time of not only tribulation, but great tribulation where Satan's wrath, God's wrath, humankind, they all go at each other and billions of people will end up dying. At the end of this comes Armageddon. Of course, they made that movie named Armageddon, but it's not even close to what is going to take place. And then the millennial reign of Christ, we will return with him from heaven because we've been raptured. We go up to heaven to be with him for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're up there seven plus years. I believe it's going to be plus, and I don't know how many years, earth time it's going to be, but I think it's going to be a little bit more than seven. But remember, in heaven, they do not reconcile time as we do here. Uh, as we know, the, a day is as a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is as a day. So we could be up there thousands of years in relative earth time where only the earth experiences about seven. So we, we just don't know how it's going to take place. After that, uh, Jesus reigns for that thousand years and Satan is released for a short period of time because he has been bound when he comes back during the battle of Armageddon, takes him, throws him into the pit along with the false prophet and the Antichrist. And then the great white throne judgment will take place when one final time Satan decides he wants to take out Jesus in Jerusalem and become the ruler of the earth. Jesus at this point destroys the earth and all the heavens. There is nothing left whatsoever. The great white throne judgment takes place at that time. All the books are open. People whose names are not found written in the book of life, they are condemned to hell. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Where there's eternal punishment and eternal contempt. And then there's a new heaven and a new earth. At that point, I believe that is when the book of Revelation says, God will wipe away every tear from our, every tear from our eyes. 
There'll be no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering of any kind for the rest of eternity. And of course, the new Jerusalem comes down, which is our dwelling place and the way that it's described in the book of Revelation is just glorious. And then I talked about the rapture itself, and I gave you some verses on that. There was 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 52, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, and Isaiah chapter 26, verses 19 through 21. Those are the rapture verses. And there is a precedent for this in the Old Testament. This idea of a rapture, of being here one moment and being translated or taken to heaven in the next moment. We know that in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, there was Enoch. And Enoch was taken right before the flood. And he, he served God. He loved God. He walked with him is what the scripture says. And God took him. And it says, I think in the King James, for he was not. Another case of this is in Second Kings chapter 2, verse 11, where you have Elijah. Remember where this chariot of fire came down? Remember the movie Eric with Eric Little in it, the Olympian, the runner? Uh, it was named Chariots of Fire. Well, that's where they get it from, is Second Kings chapter 2, verse 11, where this chariot of fire came down, swooped up Elijah. Elisha, his student, was there, saw him go at the time, and he asked for a double blessing when Elijah left. Elijah said, what can I do for you? You know, I'm going to go. And he goes, I just want a double blessing. And he did twice the number of miracles as Elijah did. That was Elisha that did twice the number of miracles. And so from there, I mentioned that there are six views of the rapture. Now, I know this is going to get a little technical, and I'm not going to draw it out. I'm not just going to make this expansive four-week study on this idea of the rapture, but you need to know the views which are out there. And so I'm just going to keep it simple. If you were interested in doing more study of this, there are lots of books on the rapture. The best one I think that is out there right now is by Don Stewart, simply called The Rapture. And he names all the different views and he gives the pros for them, why people believe that they are taking place, and also the cons. And then he reviews in each chapter why he doesn't believe that particular view is valid. And there is one that he holds as being valid, as I do. Don Stewart is part of the Calvary Chapel movement. And all of Calvary Chapel, we believe the same things when it comes to eschatology. Pastor Chuck always said, you know, if you don't believe that way, that's fine. God bless you. Go out and do another ministry, but just don't call yourself a Calvary Chapel. And so Calvary Chapels hold to this pre-tribulational rapture and pre-millennial return of Jesus Christ, which means before the seven years of tribulation, Jesus is going to come back and get us. And before the thousand-year reign of Christ commences, we're coming back with him before that. There are people that believe differently. So for us, it is beneficial for us to study this. And why? It equips us. It, it lets us know what is going to be taking place. And we're supposed to study the scriptures. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What if a good work is telling somebody about the end times? That's a good work. And so we need to study. It's beneficial to us to engage in this type of study. Paul also made it a priority to let us know 
that this was coming. He did it both in Corinthians, he is the author of that, and also in First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. He let us know this idea that the rapture is going to take place. He even spoke about it in Titus 2.13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, for those who are believers, that's the rapture, and that's who he's referring to there. It also informs us about the future, and Scripture tells us that God doesn't do anything without telling his prophets. Amos chapter 3, verse 7, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. So he wanted to let us know that this is going to be taking place. And the subject of the rapture, properly understood, it brings hope. And that's what I just gave you, Titus two thirteen. while we wait for the blessed hope. Jesus is our blessed hope. And it provides direction on how we should live. Also in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And so all of these things are the reasons why we're supposed to look not just at the rapture, but the entirety of Scripture. We're supposed to understand what these doctrines are. And I said this word in the opening prayer, and I've mentioned it before, but the study of end times or the last things, is known as eschatology, study of end times thing. It's like biology. Biology is the study of life. And and so uh, that uh, suffix on that word tells us to study. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, the six views, again, on the rapture is there is no rapture. That's number one. The second one is pre-tribulational rapture the third one is mid-tribulational rapture the fourth one is post-tribulational rapture the fifth one is pre-wrath rapture and the last one is we'll get to it just got to keep you on your toes here a little bit it's a partial rapture theory is what it's called so the word rapture is not found in the bible at least not in the English Bible. It is found in the Latin Vulgate, in Latin, and the word means for us to be caught up. And people have an objection that there is no rapture because the word rapture is not listed in the Bible. Well, do you know the word Bible is not in the Bible? Did you know the word, or the word second coming is not in the Bible? And so that's kind of a specious argument to say something isn't true because you don't see the actual words, the concepts are still there. And it is a time where Jesus, or people believe that Jesus would not take believers out of the world. And this is the view that there is no rapture. Because in John chapter 17, verse 15, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And it seems to be that Well, he's talking about leaving all believers here during the tribulation. Verse 20 of that same chapter says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So it seems to indicate from this particular passage that Jesus wants us to remain while the rapture is not taking place. He wants us to go through the tribulation period and suffer through that whole time. 
Of course, the rapture had not been taught. This is a mystery. This is something that didn't come until the Apostle Paul. And and if you read the context of what's going on there, he clearly is speaking outside the context of the end times where the believers are going to be, be removed from this earth. Also, this objection, Christians are not promised a life free of suffering. We're actually called to it. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Again, the rapture is something that is a special event, and it's been talked about several times. So what we think it might mean, we obviously know what this verse does not mean because we have the information of the rapture. And it's just rightly dividing the truth which is there. And then believers they believe, can be protected just as the Jews were protected in the plagues that Moses brought upon Egypt. They did not suffer in the land of Goshen like the Egyptians did or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the fire weren't burnt at all. And Daniel and the lion's den, the lions didn't touch him whatsoever. And so that's what they'll use to say, see, there is no rapture. We're going to be here through the whole thing. But the doctrine, I believe, is clearly laid out. And I, I'm not going to dive too deep into these things. You, you might say, well, explain it more. Why, why isn't that the truth? Because it says in a flash and a twinkling in an eye, we will be changed. We are going to meet the Lord in the air. These scriptures are very clear. And so, again, what somebody wants it to mean, there are scriptures that detail otherwise. So whatever you might think about Daniel, Shadrach, and the Jews during the plagues of Egypt and the Lord protecting them through that, this doesn't apply to the end times eschatology that is laid out in the whole of scripture. Now, another objection, and I find this one to be interesting, and I'm going to go a little bit in depth on this one. They believe that for the first 1,800 years of the church, this doctrine was not taught. The doctrine of the rapture of the church, that believers will not go through the tribulation. And of course, this is not true. It, they said it originally was taught and espoused by John Nelson Darby in 1875 at the Niagara Bible Conference in Niagara, New York where he started saying, this is the doctrine of the church. And by the way, there are Johnny-come-lately doctrines. Uh, one of the Johnny-come-lately doctrines on the rapture of the church is this idea that there's a partial rapture that takes place, that people go at different times uh, during the rapture, and that's not true. Or this idea of maybe you're, you've heard sola fide, sola gratis, sola scriptura, solo Cristo. Uh, that's by faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, all of these things. That's a doctrine that came up, uh, uh, Martin Luther expanded on. Martin Luther believed that it's by God alone that we are saved. We can do nothing to add to our salvation. And that was a doctrine that came in in the 16th century. That was not the doctrine from the first century all the way up to the 16th century. And the Catholic Church did not like that doctrine. And there was a split where you had the Protestants and you had the Catholics. They split over this thing. And we are part of that 
Protestant movement. We are not Catholic. We are Protestant. And so, and we hold to that particular doctrine. We don't believe that you have to go to confession. We don't believe that you have to go through these acts of confirmation and baptism as a child. That when somebody is old enough and they can recognize and understand everything an adult understands, that's the age at which we reach the age of accountability. And the Lord invites us to be saved. He offers us salvation and everybody is offered that gift of salvation. Romans chapter 1 talks about that, that men are without excuse because we can see God clearly in what has been made. And so that's what scripture teaches on that. But these people that say it was never taught. Well, I'm going to give you a progression and I'm only going to give you a few of these teachings where it has been taught all the way from the first century, all the way up to now. And I'm just going to give you a few of these. Now, the first one here is known as, and by the way, you can look these up and you can double check me on them. The first one where it was listed is in the Shepherd of Hermes. Now, the date of the Shepherd of Hermes, it's a writing, it's a book. I have it on my shelf. It was written somewhere between 95 and 100 A.D. This is just after the book of Revelation was written. And I'm going to read to you the exact words in this. Now, the Shepherd of Hermes, this was um, written by brother of Pius, Bishop of Rome. And this is on, if you want to look it up, the, the copy that I have, page 369 and 370. Is where it's located. Vision 4, section 22, beginning in verse 5. It says, And I went on a little farther, brothers, and behold, to say to myself, Maybe some cattle are coming and raising a cloud of dust. And it was about 200 yards away from suspect that it was something supernatural. Then the sun shone a little more brightly, and behold, I saw a huge beast, like pouring out. And the beast was about 100 feet long, and it had a head like a ceramic jar. And I began to cry, and to which I had heard, do not be double-minded, Hermes. So brothers, having put on the faith of the Lord and remembering the great things he has taught me, I took courage and faced the beast. And the beast was coming on with such a rush that it could have destroyed a city. I came near it, and huge though it was, the sea monster stretched itself out on the ground and merely thrust out its tongue and did not even twitch until I had passed by it. And the beast had four colors on its head, black and then the color of fire and blood, then gold and then white. Here's vision four, section 23, verse one. Now, after I had passed the beast and gone on ahead about 30 feet, behold, a young lady met me dressed as if she were coming out of a bridal chamber all in white and with white sandals, veiled up to her forehead, and her head covering was a turban, and her hair was white. I knew from the previous visions that she was the church, and I became more cheerful. She greeted me saying, Good morning, madame. She answered and said to me, Did anything meet you? I said to her, Madame, a beast so huge that it could destroy entire peoples, But by the power of the Lord and by his great mercy, I escaped it. You deserve to escape it, she said, 
because you cast your cares on God and opened your heart to the Lord, believing that you could not be saved by anything except the great and glorious name. Therefore, the Lord sent his angel who has authority over the beast, whose name is Segri, and he shut its mouth so that it might not hurt you. You have escaped a great tribulation because of your faith and because you were not double-minded even though you saw such a huge beast. Go therefore and declare to the Lord's elect his mighty works and tell them that this beast is a foreshadowing of the great tribulation that is coming. So if you prepare yourselves in advance and turn to the Lord with all your heart, you will be able to escape it if your heart is clean and unblemished and you serve the Lord blamelessly for the rest of the days of your life. So this is in the first century. This is outside of the Bible. This is the shepherd of Hermes. Another one. This is in the third century, the apocalypse of Elijah, chapter five, verses two through four. It says, on that day, Christ will pity those who are his own and he will send from heaven his 64,000 angels each of whom has six wings. The sound will move heaven and earth. Then they will give praise and glory. Now those whose forehead, upon whose forehead the name of Christ is written and upon whose hand is the seal, both the small and the great will be taken up upon the wings and lifted up before his wrath. The next one, seventh century. This is called the pseudo Ephraim says all saints and elect of God are gathered together before the tribulation which is to come and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not see at any time the confusion which overwhelms the world because of our sins. And another one, Peter Jerome in his book Approaching Deliverance of the Church. This was in the 17th century, 1687. He taught that Christ would come in the air to rapture the saints and return to heaven before the battle of Armageddon. And Thomas Scott in the 18th century, 1792, taught that the righteous will be carried to heaven where they will be secure until the time of judgment is over. And if you want to do the investigation yourself on this stuff, you can. And there are more than just this. Now, I, I did a time span here all the way from the first century all the way up to the 18th century. And in the 19th century, that's when John Nelson Darby came on. So it's been taught the entire time in the Christian church. The only problem with that, the reason it wasn't more prolific, is because you had this guy by the name of Augustine, which many of you know I've talked about him before. He was like the bulwark. He was the standard. He was the benchmark for the Catholic church. And whatever he said went. And if you went against that, you were killed because you would be called a heretic. And so if you came up and said, you know, there's the rapture of church, the premillennial return of Jesus Christ, and that's going to take place. And if you said that out in the open, the Catholic church would come and kill you. What a wonderful church. That, that's what they would do to people who oppose them. And of course, they withheld the word of God for centuries from the people. Remember, I told you a few weeks ago, John Wycliffe was killed because he translated God's word so everybody could read it at the time. And they didn't like that. And so they were going to kill somebody. They was kill him. And they killed anybody else that would translate the scriptures. Even the King James Version, you know, that was authorized by the king. You couldn't do that unless you had authorization either from the king or the pope. 
And so it was a terrible history that we have in the Christian church. But these things were suppressed. And even being saved by grace through faith, that was suppressed, even though I read it to you uh, on some of these previous examples here. Now, concerning the rapture of the church, not every Christian Protestant believes in the rapture of the church. Lifeway Research did a survey of 1,000 Protestant pastors, and it was published in 2016. Only 36% believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, and 36% say that the rapture is not literal. And 18%, one in five, believe the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation. Also, about 50% of pastors believe that the Antichrist is real. That means 50% don't believe that the Antichrist is real. What a lie that has been perpetrated. And 31% do not believe in the 1,000-year millennial kingdom. These are Protestant pastors. And so we're all over the board. Like, for instance, the Catholic Church doesn't believe in the rapture. They're all millennial, which means there is no millennium, that there is not going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ. But Christ is coming back, and he's just going to show up at the end. Some people believe when things get better, then he'll come and take the whole world at that time and put it under his wing and his rule. The reason, as I have explained before, for these variants in interpretation is mostly due to a literal, consistent, literal interpretation of Scripture as opposed to a consistent figurative interpretation of the Scripture. To give you an example of that, there are those that believe that we are Israel, that we are the nation of Jews, but we are spiritual Jews. And so any promises that went to the nation of Israel are defunct. They're gone. The only problem with that view is we didn't inherit the curses that they would inherit as well. And if you're going to be consistent, you have to inherit the curses as well as the blessings that are going to come. But no, let's not talk about that. That's just, we believe truth over facts. Have you heard that before? You know, this idea that you, you don't look at what scripture actually has to say in the narrative form and you just toss it out, say that doesn't comport with what I believe. So therefore I'm just going to ignore that. And that's what many people do. So what are the other views of this rapture of the church? Well, I'm going to explain to you the one that I believe in, that I believe Scripture teaches. This is the return. When Jesus returns, he will receive all believers, which is the church, to himself. This is from the time that Jesus instituted the church on the day of Pentecost up until the time of the rapture, All the people that have died previously will be resurrected first. They'll get their new bodies. They'll meet the Lord in the air. Then everyone else who remains and is alive will be immediately translated from this place to where Jesus is in the cloud. It's a beam me up Scotty type of thing, only it is instantaneous. It is very rapid, very quick. Now, with this, he's going to take us to heaven. Like I said, we're going to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I need to give you some context here, which the people receiving these teachings would have understood. We don't understand. Now, for instance, you guys remember in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, this guy named Jacob. Jacob, he met the daughters of Laban. And Leah, she had weak eyes, which means she probably had blue eyes she couldn't handle a lot of the sun out there that's what some people 
think it means. Others think that, no, oh, she's just downright ugly. And Well, I don't think that. I think her, that her eyes were blue and she couldn't handle the sunlight. Her eyes were weak, according to what the scripture says. And then Rachel. Rachel was for Jacob, va, va, boom. That was the woman that he wanted for his wife. And so he agreed with Laban to work for seven years before he could have Rachel. And what did sneaky, dirty, conniving Laban do? He switched. He put Leah. Of course, she would have had a veil over her head. Jacob would not have known. Put them in a tent that's pitch black. He consummates the marriage, wakes up in the morning and, wrong woman. And it was Laban's job. And what he did is he took Rachel and said, no, we're taking you way out of here. And we're putting Leah in your place right there. And when it talks about that, when Laban comes back, he goes, hey, it's not our habit to give away the younger before the older. You work another seven years, you know, finish. And it says, finish your week. Finish your week with Leah. Then we'll give you Rachel and you give another seven years. Boy, talk about fit to be tied. I don't know what I would have done in something like that. You get the wrong bride and, oh, anyhow, it was a mess. But it's this idea of a wedding week. And this is listed in Genesis chapter 29, verse 27. So when they had a wedding, it went for a full seven days. How long is the rapture? Seven years. You see a little bit of connection there? And what would happen for that week? The man would take his wife, go into the marital chamber. Guess where she would remain? For a week. He would come and go. She would remain for a week. What does Isaiah say? Isaiah says, come into my chambers until his wrath has passed by. And so even prior to this, now I'm going to back up just a little bit. What would happen is a, a bride, the parents would get together and the parents would have this betrothal between their children, the, the man and the woman. And the boy, the young man, would go away and build a room on his father's house. Usually the rooms in the Middle East there, the houses in the Middle East, they would have a wall around them, and that would be like the compound. And the father's house would be in that compound, and there would be room to make additional dwelling places there. And so the son would leave, and he would go and build a dwelling place that where he is, his bride could be also. Does that sound familiar? John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. I go away to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. Because what are we called in Ephesians chapter 5? The bride of Christ. And so the husband, the husband-to-be, the one who is betrothed, would go build this dwelling place and get it ready. Get it ready to receive his bride. And of course, the bride... She would have her attendants that would be with her and they would send out spies or they'd go see how far along is he? Can we look in there? And is it almost done? Because as soon as it was done, he would go get his bride and she would not know at what time he would show up. He could show up in the middle of the night. And of course, they, if they came in the middle of the night, what would happen is the groom would get his attendants, his buddies, and they'd light torches. And they start, woo, 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 woo. And they, they'd head out through the streets 
And the bride and the bridesmaids would always be listening. It's, is that, I think it's him. And they would get up and they'd get dressed or do whatever they have to do because they were ready to go. And of course, as we get into chapter 25, we're going to see the parable of the ten virgins, the ones who were ready to go, the ones who were prepared. And so he had come and get his bride, don't know what time, and then take her back to his father's house, the dwelling place that was set up there. Now, if you know that about the weddings that took place with the Jews, you look at the rapture of the church and go, this is totally it, Jesus. He went away to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be also. And he's going to come on a time we do not know, and he's going to rapture us, and we're going to go to be with him for the wedding week, which is spelled out in Scripture. And after that, the bride emerges, and after that, in the prophetic timeline, we come back here with them. We are like the armies of heaven at that point too. But we are betrothed to Christ. We belong to him. He is our husband, so to speak, as collectively speaking of the church. And so that that's the rapture, and that's how it takes place. And you have this bridal week, which is going on. And it God set that up so we would understand what it is with the rapture. And that's why it's a pre-tribulational rapture as well. He gets us before there is any harm that comes to anyone uh, around us or inside the world. Then there's the rapture that is mid-tribulational. And at this particular point, some of these views, they divest the wrath of human beings or Satan with the wrath of God. They say, no, we're not appointed to the wrath of God, but the wrath of humans or the wrath of Satan, we can endure that. And so that's why they split this timeline here. And as I said before, the abomination which makes desolate, it seems to be clear from Scripture, that is when the great tribulation happens. That's when the wrath of God takes place. And of course, I, I don't believe this particular view. In First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, we know that we are saved from the coming wrath. It says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. In First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, it says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, and they, it starts at the center of the seven-year period, three and a half years, they believe that the last half we're going to be spared from, but not the first half. Now, with that particular view... Who breaks the first seal? You guys know? In the book of Revelation, remember the seven seals that are there? The Lamb, the Lamb of God, which we understand is Jesus Christ. He breaks that first seal. When that first seal is broken, there are four horsemen of the apocalypse that are let loose. Loose. They're let loose. And so you have this one on a white horse, and he has a bow, but no arrows, which he goes to conquer, but he's going to do it politically and not by war. And there's also this horse of war and this horse of death, the pale horse and the fiery horse. It's just a mayhem, and it was released 
by God upon the earth and he uses human agency. It is God's wrath coming through human agency to be perpetrated on the earth. And they say, well, God's wrath doesn't start till the middle. No, it starts right at the beginning of the seven years of tribulation. Then there's this rapture is pre-wrath. Now, pre-wrath is, their view is it's not at the center like the mid-tribulational rapture. It's five and a half years into the tribulation period. They take the tribulation period and divide it into three sections. Now, I I don't want to lose you guys on this, but I'm just going to try to keep it as simple as possible. And by the way, this is a Johnny-come-lately doctrine. It was first talked about in the 70s. A book was published on it in the 90s. And now it's the fad that's out there by some who don't believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. And so they divide it into three sections. The first three and a half years, that's one section. The next one and three quarters of years, that's another section. And then the rest of it, that's another section. And and it's kind of like, well, it's at the end of the sixth seal that is at the uh, beginning of the, no, at the end of the one and three quarter years. You see how confusing this starts getting? And then the seventh seal ushers in the rest of it, and that's what we're going to avoid is the last seven years. And they go into all these fanciful reasons why it's pre-wrath, and we're going to be here through the tribulation, and we're going to have to refuse the mark, and we're going to be killed. It's just, it's a problem. I mean, they have to go into such detail to try to explain really what's going on. And it's as simple as Jesus comes, gets us. We go away. The tribulation happens. We come back. It's that simple in Scripture. But people pile on just like the Jews used to do. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's all you got to do. It's so simple. But we complicate things. Like, how do you get saved? Well, if you believe in TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. If you just hold to that, you're going to be all good. And it's like, just confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. That's all you have to do. All this other stuff, what happens to it? We are great at making things complicated when God decided to keep it simple. And so there are some problems with this pre-wrath view. Of course, God begins by breaking the seal and the four living creatures are the one who instituted and then the four horsemen of the apocalypse comes out. So God's wrath begins at the breaking of the first seal. It doesn't happen either three and a half years in or five and a half years in. So that's the biggest problem. Now, there are probably another half dozen reasons why this doesn't work, but I'm not going to bore you with those. Just remember, pre-wrath, no-go. Just pre-wrath, no-go. Then there's the rapture is post-tribulational, which means the seven years of tribulation, Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation, which means we go through the tribulation. Now, if you take the picture of the bride and you're building a house for your bride to dwell in and by the way they have to get rid of the dwelling place that we're going to go to because this idea of the post-tribulational rapture it coincides with the second coming and it's more the u-turn theory we just go what straight back down that's how we do it we go what to get transformed and come back down we don't get to go to this dwelling place so that's one big problem 
that we have with that. But the proponents would say that there is only the second coming uh, and that's it. There is no rapture. There's only the second coming. The two are combined and that the believers are destined to suffer through this tribulation. So you take this bride, you're saying, hey, girly, I'm going to be there before you know it. But first, I have to give you a few punches in the face, hit you across the back of the neck, kick you a couple of times, you know, just because, because I'm appointing you to suffer. Now, is that any way to teach your bride? You guys who got married to a woman, did you come up to her and say, I love you so much, and then punched her before you went to the altar, the day before you went to the altar? Would you do something like that? That's exactly what the post-tribulational rapture is like. Okay, we're going through the tribulation. I can take it, and we get punched left and right. And God has not appointed us to punches or slaps, or wrath, or persecution. We're not going through any of that. He loves us. He wants to protect us. He gave us this idea of the bride being taken to the Father's house and protected, Isaiah chapter 26, until his wrath is passed by. God is for us. He is not against us. He wants to protect us for those things. And so, again, there are several more reasons why this doesn't work. I just wanted to give you... Uh, those and a couple more on that one if it's the u-turn theory now remember if the millennium takes place if you really believe this you have to get rid of the millennium and jesus just comes back at the very end but if the millennium takes place and it's the u-turn theory the dead in christ arise first all the rest of the believers rise we get transformed we come back down to earth who's left on earth the wicked what does God do with the wicked? Gets rid of them. They are sent to hell until the books are open. And so who's left to repopulate the earth? You have the believers that have their transformed bodies. You have the unbelievers that have been cursed and they are taken away. And we know that the parable of the wheat and the tares, the, the weeds are gathered first and they're thrown into the fire. That's everything. So who's left to populate the millennium? No one. See, that's a problem. So then you have to get rid of the millennium. Oh, but even though it says a thousand years in the book of Revelation, people say, ah, that's metaphorical. No, it's not metaphorical. It's literal. And God tells us the earth will be repopulated at that time. So the righteous believers who make it through the tribulation will repopulate the earth. And it, it tells us, I believe it's in Isaiah, that a child will die at a hundred years. And you, you would go up to somebody and say, oh, he was so young at a hundred years old, which means the people who repopulate the earth are going to live for hundreds of years, just like the patriarchs of old. You know, if you go back to Methuselah, 900 and some odd years that he lived, hundreds of years. Adam was just one generation removed from Noah when the flood came. You know, so he lived almost up until the time of Noah. And you're going, wow, that's incredible. And God is going to remove the law of decay or what is known as the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy or heat loss. He's going to remove all that. And the earth is going to be like it was meant to be in the original creation. It's going to be a fantastic place uh, to be, to live here. And so this idea of the post-tribulational rapture, I, I just don't think that that works either. Then there's the partial rapture. 
And this one, I'm just going to tell you right up front, it's kind of like the doctrine of purgatory. The doctrine of purgatory basically states that you're not worthy to make it into heaven yet, so we're going to take you to a way station. At that way station, we're going to pummel you a little bit, you're going to be beat up, and you've got to work off your sins. And if you say that, well, then the work of Christ was not totally effectual for your forgiveness of sins because you have to work them off. All of a sudden, bing, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. You're not saved by works. You cannot do anything to gain merit from God to get your salvation. And that's basically what the partial rapture theory is, that there will be times where people get initially raptured and that's because they're holy and they're righteous and they're set apart and they've been doing good and they're living their lives the way they're supposed to and they don't have any secret sins and they're just holy and righteous and all good and they get to go. All the rest of you, us, we get to remain for a little while longer. It's kind of like the 10 virgins that we'll get to in Matthew chapter 25. You have 10 virgins. You guys remember the story? And the five virgins, they had plenty of oil. They brought some extra oil to keep their lamps burning. But the first five didn't bring quite enough. And so they turned back to the other five and said, give us some of your oil. And they said, no, we're not going to give you some of our oil because our lamps will go out. By the time we give you some oil, we won't make the full journey. And so those five virgins that were foolish, they went back and they got some oil and they missed the opening to the gate. But they're both virgins. They both are betrothed. So there's those who go inside and those who have to wait outside until, you know, God does something and you get to go in increments. So you take all the, and there's not just one group. Apparently there's several different groups that get to go at different times and it's, Just please, you're making my head ache just trying to think how these things can be accomplished when the scriptures are so clear as far as this partial rapture and how it works. So the partial rapture, it's based on works. It is not based on any type of merit. Also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, it talks about the rapture of the church now, do you guys know the character of the church at Corinth? They were a bunch of screaming memes. They were doing everything wrong. They were not getting it right. There were divisions among them. Some would say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Peter. Well, I'm of Jesus, so I'm better than all of you. And they were arguing back and forth who was better. And then inside the church, they were taking each other to court, chapter 6. And Paul says, you ought to be ashamed. Is there not somebody of lowly estate inside your church that can judge these matters between you? After all, you're going to be judging angels. And he said this to their shame, is what he said. And then there were those who were married, and they go, I got saved, so I have to divorce my husband who was not saved, and we can't be together because God doesn't bless that particular union, so we're going to get a divorce. And Paul says, whoa, stop. Pull out the plug. No, you guys need to remain together. Remain in the situation to which you were called. And then there were those who said, I'm more spiritual because I speak in tongues. And Paul said, no, that's not the way it is. I'd rather have you prophesy than speak in tongues. I mean, they were just blowing it left and right. There were some people who had died because they received communion in an unworthy manner. In other words, they'd go have this feast. They'd eat all of their Doritos and all their guacamole chip, and they wouldn't share any, anything with anybody else who was there. They wouldn't give them any Pepsi or refreshments, and they kept it all for their own families. And there were some who were going hungry, and these love feasts. And so some of 
of them had died as a result. They were judged. And then there were Ananias and Sapphira who lied. They went to the apostle Peter and said, yeah, we sold the field for this much. And Peter said, no, I'm sorry, you lied. You're dead. Goodbye. And then the wife comes in. Same thing happens to her. And she lied to the apostle Peter. Sorry, your husband lied. Now you lied. You're dead too. Goodbye. And, and got rid of them. It was just a carnal church. Like I said, a bunch of screaming memes, a bunch of immature believers. They'd never arrived at maturity. So you got all of that? Well, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, that first it's the dead in Christ who will rise. Then it says, we who remain in the church at Corinth. Who remains in the church at Corinth? A bunch of screaming memes. A bunch of people who just couldn't get it right. A bunch of carnality was taking place there. And so that brings me a little comfort when I don't think I'm measuring quite up. Of course, I don't. It's only by the grace of God that I measure up or you measure up. We all get to go. If we have confessed Christ, woohoo, we're in. But there is this view which is out there. I think Zane Hodges is one who holds to it. It's this free grace that you can accept Jesus Christ and forgive the phrase, but you can live like hell and still go to heaven. I don't believe that. I believe there's going to be a transformation of some kind. Will that person be perfect? No. Will they repeat a sin? Yes. Will they seek after forgiveness from God for doing so? Yes, they will. They will understand that they're in this fallen body and they go to God and they ask for his grace, his unmerited favor, for his mercy. They turn to him and say, please give me your mercy. And God says, love to. And he pours out his mercy and grace upon them. And so... These are the ideas of the rapture of the church. Just know this. You don't even have to worry about these particular views if you accept Christ and follow him. That's how it goes. He he told us that he's going to come and take care of us. And he's going to give us a new body. And those who disagree, like the mid-tribulational rapture guys, as we go up, we go, see, told you, we're going to be up there and we're going to high-five. And I know I was wrong. It's okay. I forgive you because we're about forgiveness, right? It's going to be all great for all the believers who were up there. We're not even going to remember that stuff. Let's go have some food. We're going to go have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And God is going to give us our reward at that time. It's going to be fantastic. And then when we come back, he's going to give us places to rule and reign with him. I don't know where you're going to end up, but we'll still know each other. And remember how Jesus was able to just materialize in the upper room there. Our bodies are going to be like him, so like his. And so if we want to go visit each other, you just kind of, you're right there. Hi, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. I just wanted to show up and have a little bit of fellowship there. It's going to be a fantastic existence. But in the meantime, we're just supposed to occupy. God gave us great and precious promises. We just need to abide in the vine. And those people say, well, I don't need fellowship. I don't need to study God's word. No, I've given you all the reasons why it's so important for us because we get the blessing. And if we have that as our focus, we don't have to worry we don't have to fret. God has our backs, and we're not going to have to worry about dumb old Satan giving us a hard time, being beat up by the bridegroom. None of that stuff will apply. 
May God give you the wisdom and insight and maybe even pick up a couple of books and read about this and be able to pick it apart and say, well, that's not true. That's not what Scripture says about the rapture. And as you do that, may you be filled with wisdom and knowledge to express it and explain it to others and be a blessing to them as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have just enlightened us so much as to what is going to happen in the end times. This idea of the rapture, that we're going to be transformed, that we get new bodies. You are so good to us. Jesus, we thank you that you have called us to this salvation. We ask that you would help us as your word says in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that we'd be living lives that are worthy of the calling. And Father, we call upon you for your mercy and your grace when we don't measure up, which is so often. But we thank you that you love us and that you care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.